This is an ABC podcast. Hey ladies, as a warning, this episode contains some swearing as well as some depictions of violence. Hello. Moshi moshi. Moshi moshi. Hi, Yashka. Hello, Yumi. How are you going? Good. Okay, so we're recording now. Okay. Sometimes I like to imagine there's an invisible thread that connects me to my mum. When I was a kid, the thread was short. My mum nurtured me, hugged me and supported me. When I gave birth to you, I knew it was coming. But, oh, when you came out, my first thought was, oh, more washing, more nappies. And um, really, I didn't know what to do. I'm sorry, Yumi. But as I grew up, that thread got longer and we became separate people who don't always agree. I think I know you when I start repeating things. I know that. Otherwise, I don't think I I know you. No, you do. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Well, I think sometimes you think it's funny to insult me. Like, I hate it when you call me a ding-dong. Oh, because you are. (laughs) (laughs) Can't help that. When I say that, I really meant it. Aside from the occasional ding-dong comment, which majorly gets on my tits, I have a pretty good relationship with Yoshko. And I consciously decided to start calling her Yoshko instead of mum when I was 19 because, well, that is her name. And I thought using her actual name would help me to treat her more like a person and less like someone who owed me something. Because there's such a load of mythology around the whole mother-daughter relationship. It's described as a sacred bond filled with trust, joy, support and affection. And I'll be honest, with my own mum... That's all true. I know that the invisible thread connecting us will never break. If you have a mum, the relationship between you is likely to be the most formative and influential relationship of your whole life. But what if you don't have a straightforward relationship with your mum? I would always feel like the, being very honest, I always feel like the freak in the room. The stories that I have to share are not the stories that people want to hear, or if they do hear them, they don't know what to do with them. The relationships we have with our mums can be frustrating, they can be fraught, and for some people, toxic. I feel like I've spent my whole life being afraid, crushed. Crushed is a good word. Your spirit feels crushed. I've been sad, never really felt whole. I've been angry. I've spent a lot of my life angry at the world. I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about toxic mums. Now, before we go any further, I need to say, as a mum... Parenting is really hard work. In the last 24 hours, I have literally wiped asses, made lunches, coached teenagers out of bed and toddlers into bed, sorted outfits, checked for knits, done homework, kissed, fed, tickled, dressed, undressed, shouted at, sang to, sat with, slept with and cuddled my kids and no one at any time gave me a medal, a standing ovation or even said thank you. 
Mothering children is a ton of unpaid emotional and physical labour, and sadly, people spend far too much time judging what mums do. So this episode isn't designed to attack mums. It's about examining the relationship between mother and daughter, because for some of us, that relationship is really challenging. You learn from your mother how to be attached to someone even when not in their presence. You learn from your mother how to be attached to someone and not be anxious about what that attachment is going to feel like. You learn from your mother to not avoid being close to and being connected to someone else. They're the things that your early relationship with your mother teaches you. This is Amanda Gordon. She's a clinical psychologist and says the mother-daughter bond influences all of our relationships. When you're a young girl, you depend on your mum for everything and your mum knows everything. So that really makes a difference to how you develop. So if you have a connected relationship with your mum and uh, you know that she's always on your side, that doesn't mean she always agrees with what you do and it doesn't mean that you're going to get away with anything you do, but she's on your side, then you're going to grow up feeling a sense of self, which is really true. What does a typical mother-daughter relationship look like when you become a teenager? Uh, It's a mother-daughter relationship in adolescent years is often fraught with argument, um, with secrecy often, with rebellion. Doesn't have to be. Sometimes with mothers and daughters there can be great friendship and understanding and intimacy and warmth at that time. I worry about that. I think it's much healthier when there is some rebellion from the teenager, some angst, some pulling away, as I say, looking towards the peers rather than the parents for confirmation and affirmation of who I am. We have different values. And as you become a young adult, you begin to grapple with what your values are compared with your mother. Yep. So how do you see that play out in the people that you see in your practice? People that I see in my practice often have had a very difficult time negotiating that separation from their mother because the goal is not to be entirely separate from your mother. The goal is to remain attached, but to have an independent sense of self. If you are not able to negotiate that well, then it can lead to all sorts of problems in development of self because how do I know where I end Mm. and my mother begins? And so often the women who come to me at any age are those who have grappled with that differentiation between themselves and their mothers. So there's a bit of pressure on the relationship, right? Like, can I just tell you about a few Mother's Day cards I randomly found on the internet just now? Most are pink, which is already annoying. And then you've got flower wreaths, orchids, tulips, love heart balloons, baby pelicans, mama koalas, and words like bestie, hero, sacrifice, happy love, and most creatively, best mum ever. (laughs) But the thing is, those words and those sentiments are not everyone's experience. The two women you'll hear from in this episode, Emily and Claire, have spent their whole lives trying to figure out their mothers. The reason why we're talking to them is because the relationships they have with their mums are a million miles from that loving and sacred hallmark Mother's Day sentiment. 
I think we would have appeared like a normal middle working class family, um, a mum, two kids and a dad and a nice house in a reasonable area with a dog. This is Emily. We've given her a different name. She's 42, a nurse and a single mum of two kids. My mum was beautiful to look at. She is the quintessential Barbie. Even in her ageing state, she's still very attractive. We just would have looked like a normal family. So it sounds like she had sort of an external facade, a Barbie, very commanding, very vivacious, and then there was the more private side that she showed. What was she like behind closed doors? Just a different person, and I never felt safe unless my dad was home because I could stuff up at any moment. She was irrationally angry. You could do something that another parent might just go, oh, well, it's okay, you made a mistake. But for my mum it was she would turn into an extreme rage, lash out, hit, belittle, abuse. There was no empathy, like no compassion. What kind of things would you do that would provoke that reaction? (laughs) You know, it might be I didn't load the dishwasher correctly or I put a plate in upside down or... Maybe I didn't make my bed neat enough. It would just be what I would consider as a parent a minor infraction and her reaction is the end of the world kind of reaction. Christmas time can be very fraught for families at the best of times. What Mm. happened that Christmas when you were 12 years old? Christmas in our house was, like a lot of people, a big deal. You know, it was my mum would cook these big, amazing, lavish meals and all the best cutlery and crystal and china and napkins were out and and a big formal dining table. And she had this antique crockery set and there's the curve of the oval table and I've knocked this square plate off the table and it's smashed on the floor. And for that, straight into a rage, punched me in the head Call me a fucking idiot and useless and can't you do anything right? Um, That plate is irreplaceable. I can't just get another one and how much money it cost and clean it up, you fucking idiot. Just on and on it went. And obviously by that time I'm crying and I'm picking up the plate. And then someone's come in and from memory, I believe it's my dad, and obviously I'm crying a lot and... Then she's down on her knees. It's okay, sweetheart. I know you didn't mean to do it. You know, we'll we'll get another one. Someone will find another one for me. She's a totally different person in the blink of an eye. So I've cleaned up the plate and I've put it in the bin and I've, I've just gone in my room. And that's how I've spent 30 years thinking about Christmas. How often was your mum physically violent to you? As a child... I would say up to the age of 15, at least every second day. You know, there's not, a, there's not a pattern to it. Sometimes it could have been every day, one week, and maybe she didn't do anything for many weeks. There were times when she would not be home for weeks. They were the best weeks of my life. But physical violence was something that was pretty common up until I was 15 years old. Wow. And then at 15, were you just too big? At 15, I think a family member, she had been saying to me for years, don't take this from your mum, you Mm. know, why do you let her speak to you like this? Speak back. And I was like, 
you don't speak back to your elders and if I speak back to her, she'll kill me. I don't know if I really believed that she'd kill me, but I really believed that the belting I would get wouldn't be worth the satisfaction I got from speaking back to her. But when I was 15, she hit me one day and I just turned around and said, if you ever fucking hit me again, I will hit you back. She stopped and she looked at me and for a moment I actually thought I was going to die. She had this look of... God, rage. Just her eyes were black. And then she just turned and walked away. And I remember going in my room thinking, oh, my God, she's going to kill me. She's going to beat me black and blue. I I don't know what she's going to do, but she's going to kill me. And she didn't do anything. And she never spoke about it. And she never hit me again. Emily's mum continues to be emotionally abusive even now. After Emily got divorced a couple of years ago, she saw a counsellor. The counsellor said her mum had strong narcissistic traits. Emily describes her mum as someone who is completely besotted with herself. Her needs were always more important than Emily's. She'd constantly blame Emily for her lack of career and often refused to take her to the doctor when she was sick. Emily says her mum's narcissism influenced her decision to marry her (laughs) ex-husband. Well, I went straight for a male version of her. I wasn't someone that prolifically dated when I was young and I had some very lovely boyfriends. Of course, I sabotaged those and at 19 met my future husband. And it was very comfortable because it was very familiar. So I spent nearly 20 years with a male version of my mum. Do you have a fear of turning into your mother? Always. Um, When I became a parent and I was first pregnant, that was my biggest fear and I prayed that I would not have a girl. I didn't want history to repeat. But I think having the role model that you didn't want is just as powerful as having the role model that you do want. So I knew everything I didn't want to be as a mum. And I guess I've tried to use that in a positive sense. All the things that I maybe wanted, I try and do for my kids. But it's really easy to revert back to this autopilot mode of, you know, if you're stressed or you're tired or you've got nothing in reserve, if I yell or I snap. Just seeing the looks on my kids' faces when they say that. It makes me question everything I do, everything I said, everything I am. Am I her? Even sitting here today to talk to you makes me question, am I her? Am I being all about me? But I need others to know that their experience wasn't normal and it's not okay. And yeah, that's why I'm here. (laughs) If you're wondering, Emily feels angry at her dad for doing nothing because he knew better than anyone what her mum put her through. Emily did cut ties with her mum for about four years when she was in her 20s. But she's back in her life now. Emily wants her kids to have a relationship with their grandma. So they see her once every couple of months and the kids debrief with mum afterwards. Because of Emily's anxiety about possessing some of her mother's narcissistic traits, She worries whether she's got the balance right between putting her own needs first 
and being a good mum. Like Emily, I, I get it. I feel guilty about doing things that serve me and me only. But sometimes you do just have to sit by yourself in utter silence, eating five Portuguese tarts in rapid succession and not sharing any of them. That's just how it goes. Amanda Gordon, the psychologist, says being completely selfless in any of your relationships is a bad way to operate. Complete selflessness is a really bad trait in a mum. I don't think the goal of mothering is to put yourself out of the picture, make it all about the children or or all about the rest of the family. Because, first of all, it's poor modelling. Secondly, if you're always looking after the needs of the children, then the children aren't learning to look after their own needs. And the goal of parenting, mothering, is to help the children become effective, independent adults. And that means they have to take some responsibility. If you're protecting them from feeling hurt or feeling anxious or feeling sad, then they're not going to become resilient. They're not going to learn to manage their emotions. So it's really important that mothers don't do everything and become selfless on behalf of the children. We've spoken to a woman, Emily which isn't her real name, about her narcissistic mum. It's affected her in many ways. First of all, what is narcissistic personality disorder? A narcissistic personality disorder, in a clinical sense, is not a really common diagnosis, but there are many people who have what we call narcissistic traits. So they have the capacity and often they act in a narcissistic way, but they're not sort of boiled over and bottled as narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. She says that she picked a narcissist as a partner Mm. and stayed with him for almost 20 years. Is this a common pattern? It really is. Mm. We often pick for a partner, someone who has the traits that are familiar to us, even if they're uncomfortable in lots of ways. At least we know what they are. And if we believe that our only way of existence is by being an extension of someone else, then we can become an extension of a different person, which is very, very difficult. And it takes significant struggle for women like that to recognise that they are an individual person and they have individual needs that they have to learn to meet. So how do you know if your mum has it? Like in what ways do they tend to behave? If when you're talking to your mother about something that concerns you and her response is about herself and how what you're saying is impacting on her and what it means to her, then that's a sort of narcissistic behaviour. If your mother's concerns are about appearance and what other people think of her as a reflection of what you've done, then that's a narcissistic behaviour. I'm loath to use a label narcissistic about any one person because once you use that label, you lose individuality. But you can see how those sorts of behaviours can impact a, a daughter's development because of what her mother is doing. Narcissism isn't the only reason a mum might not be there for you. I'd like you to meet Claire. She's 38, and for most of her life, Claire's mum was really sick. Growing up, her mum had kidney disease, lung disease and heart issues. Claire spent a lot of time visiting her mum in hospital, and her sickness meant they didn't form that classic mother-daughter relationship. Claire describes she and her mum as two strangers sharing space. She probably did the best in her circumstances, but that often just meant that I did a lot of 
stuff for myself. So my mother was the kind of person that if you if you went to hug her, she I can still distinctly remember this, she would push you off her and sort of shake her hands around and, and sort of say, like, get off, get out of my, um, I can't do this. Was there a point in your life, Claire, when you saw other people's relationships with their mums and went, oh, mine's actually outside of what's normal? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much any time I would go and stay with friends whenever mum was uh, in hospital and I'd see their whole families um, and I'd think, oh, oh, this is what it's meant to look like. Oh, mine doesn't look like this. And then, I don't know, I think I just went, well, that's, I can't make it different, particularly in my 20s, more than when I was a kid. In my 20s, when when people would talk about the relationships with their mums as they became adults and stuff like that, um, I would always feel like the... I guess, um, being very honest, I always feel like the freak in the room because I felt like I couldn't contribute to that conversation at all when people say what sort of relationship they have with their mum or do, um, hanging out with their mum or my mum bought me this and something like that mm. and I'd just have to sit there very quietly and hope that no one noticed that I wasn't saying anything because I had nothing to say. As soon as I could move out of home... I did, <laughs> and I was really happy with that, and, and I have a really happy life uh, now. And so I just chose to have uh, less contact with my mother. It, it wasn't, like I said, she wasn't mean, she wasn't a bad person, but we had just never formed any kind of relationship. We didn't have the same sort of um, values or understandings. She didn't understand me at all. I often didn't understand her, and, and so it was just difficult having any kind of conversations and particularly as you get your independence as you get older as in like you feel stronger about saying things like no I believe this um, then it just seemed a bit pointless to to spend a bunch of time together. Did you ever say I love you? No that was um, not part of our vocabulary. Um, I'm gonna cry now about this. Uh, so I guess um, I can't remember her ever saying that. I think um, I can remember maybe um, in the last five years she wrote it once in a card, like a happy birthday, Claire, love mum. Um, and that's probably the first time that I saw it. Um, and I guess it just wasn't, yeah, it wasn't part of our vocabulary for each other. And, and I'm I'm part of that conversation too, so I didn't, I didn't instigate it, and I didn't say it in any way as well. But yeah, it just it wasn't part of it. It's complicated. It's really hard, isn't it? Because you want them yeah. to love you. Yeah, but I guess um, I just found. I don't know, other other people that I loved and other people that loved me back and I, it just didn't, I don't know, I, I think I just figured out at a really young age to stop expecting things um, from my family and then I don't have to be disappointed. And so I just accepted that and found other people that loved me and cared about me and I invest in those relationships instead. 
About a year ago, Claire's mum died of kidney disease. Her mother was almost 70, and it's been really difficult for Claire to navigate her grief when the relationship she had with her mum was so complex. She's felt incredibly alone. You know, I did Google searches for loss of a mother or, you know, what does death of a mother feel like or what, what would not be a normal sort of grief or what should I anticipate? And, and all of those searches come back with this sort of, I guess, that idealised mother that, that maybe exists for a lot of other people um, of, you know, your mother is your best friend or your mother was there with you on your wedding day or your, your mother does this and this and, and none of that resonated with me. But I guess... The experience that I had that I found quite challenging was that um, people quite understandably project their own feelings about their mother and how they might feel about their mother's death onto you when you lose a parent. So I understand that automatic reflection that we do as humans and then projection of it, but that's then really difficult when what people are projecting on you is is a completely different relationship than what you had. And for me, I just felt it made me feel like there was just no space for me to be able to say, yeah, but I didn't have that relationship with my mother and I'm I'm sad, I'm really sad that she's dead. But she's also, that was a really complicated life for her. It's a complicated life for all of us. And the thing that, you know, is really odd, and I always feel odd thinking and saying this, is my mother was the only one in my family that I still had any form of regular relationship with, primarily because of the caring responsibilities. And so when she passed away, it was like that tether to this family that I'd been trying to move away from for years got cut loose. And I finally felt, the only way I can describe it is liberated from this family. That's a really complicated feeling to have to voice to someone who hasn't had that experience and who shouldn't have to have that experience. And I guess I just felt really silenced. Amanda Gordon, the psychologist, says grieving the death of a parent with whom you've had a complex relationship will in itself be a complex process. In grieving, it's really important that you grieve the loss of the good and the bad, the things that you loved and the things that you didn't love. And in a straightforward relationship, if I can suggest there is one, then the daughter will grieve the loss of the good while acknowledging that she had that fight with her mum or she didn't resolve that particular issue with her mum. And that's a small part of it. And then through the grieving, the goal is to reintegrate that sense of self, still having a connection to mum, but knowing that mum is no longer there in the living with you. As the daughter or son of a, an imperfect mother who's maybe narcissistic or maybe just absent, what do you have to give yourself permission to do? I think it's really important to give yourself permission to be an imperfect, flawed person with emotions, to recognise their imperfections, but perhaps to learn to forgive them for those imperfections, which can be very hard to do. And some of us are not very good at it. And we have to learn to forgive the flaws in others. And then you start to forgive the flaws in yourself. There's a very pervasive cultural construct that our mothers are our best friends. They adore us unconditionally. We adore them. From your perspective, Amanda, how common is that narrative in real life? I don't have any figures, but I would suspect it is 
less common in real life than in the mythology. I would argue that I didn't want my mother to be my best friend and I don't want to be my daughter's best friend. They can have as many friends as they like, but they have one mum and that relationship is different and I want it to be different. So I stand up against the idea of mum being my best friend or me being my daughter's best friend because I don't think it's helpful. I think the mother-daughter relationship can be bigger than that, bigger than just a best friend. It can be, it can and should be unconditionally attached but not unconditionally I approve of everything you do and I will I will mm. just stand by you whatever you do. No, you can argue with your mum and you can have a fight with your mum and the good news is, unlike your best friend, that bond doesn't ever get broken because you have a secure attachment. You know it's okay. So it means you can be straight with each other differently than even your best friend when you've got it right. The word mythology keeps coming up and I find that really interesting because when I cast my mind to what I think a mum is, I often think of the Christian imagery of Mary with the baby Jesus and they're both, they both have a halo around them. Then <laughs> it's sort of like the, there's a saintliness mm. that we expect from our mothers, but mothers are just regular people. Mm. It, am yeah. I wrong in thinking we expect mums to sort of have – they might not be saintly in every other way of their lives, but when it comes to their mothering that they have sort of this saintliness? I think it's really sad when that that, that mythology has developed because it puts mothers in a very difficult position. Yes, we as mothers all make mistakes, but that's actually healthy. We need our mothers to be good enough, good enough. And it's a really important term. Our mothers just have to be good enough to allow us to be securely attached to them and then to grow and to grow our own wings and to fly. Most mothers are actually good enough, even though they battle with their daughters and they get things wrong and they make the wrong decisions, they don't let them go to the M movie or they do let them go to the M movie or, you know, they won't let them out with their friends at night or they turn a blind eye to the alcohol. Most of us are good enough. And daughters have to learn to respect that as well. And when you become a mother yourself, you start to learn it. And that's great. So what I've learned in this episode is that while a lot of mums, and in fact most mums, are awesome, some just aren't and never will be. Some mothers are not capable of being what you want or need them to be. So if that's your mum... Come move in with me. There's room and our house is so busy already that we won't even notice a couple of extras. Just kidding. I actually couldn't deal with any more head lice. But listen, if you've got ambivalent feelings towards your mother or you even hate her, as the psychologist says, don't feel guilty about that. It's normal and common and totally okay. I've also learned that if your mum's a bit annoying or frustrating or maybe she calls you a ding-dong, just remember that all humans are flawed and that includes mums. Ladies is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. It's produced by Cassandra Steeth. Supervising producer is Madeline Jenner and our executive producer is Justine Kelly. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. The manager of Audio Studios is Kelly Reardon. Hey, Yoshko. Yeah. Every now and then, Anouk and Dee, both kids, yeah. big kids, they laugh and they say, I'm turning into you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that's, well, you mean that's compliment. <laughs> that is compliment. <laughs> <It's not. laughs>
So you should be very pleased. You should say thank you to them. <laughs> I think it's when I've been sitting really still for ages and I'm stiff and I stand up yeah. and I'm like, oh, <laughs> and I'm all. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Yoshka. I love you. Okay. Thanks for okay, taking your you time. Too. That's okay. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. okay bye. Bye-bye.